We want to thank our youth worship team for leading us. It's always a joy to see young men and women uh, expressing a passion for the Lord Jesus Christ and becoming an active part of the corporate worship of our church. <clears throat> We're on a journey. We've been walking through Highway 27, and we stop periodically along the way. 27 stops along that highway, and we take time to look at what's on that particular stop. But one of the dangers as we keep moving along is that we forget what we learned and then move on to something else. And that's inevitable. And so as we, my hope is that by the end of this journey, we'll at least have a one phrase remembrance of what each book of the Bible is all about. And because pictures speak a lot more than a thousand words, we're taking a few moments in each of our services to remind ourselves. What book of the Bible is this? Matthew. And what's the theme? Jesus the King. Okay. What about this? Acts. And its theme? The church, the shaping or growth of the church. And for those of you who were missing last week, you'll learn this one. What's this? Romans. And the theme is paid in full. Our debt has been paid. Okay, now Paul wrote the letter to the Romans from Corinth. Now just by way of reminder, this is where Corinth is. Corinth is way over here in modern day Greece. And Paul wrote the letter to the Romans from his third missionary journey when he was in Corinth. Now... Corinth was situated on an isthmus and therefore was gifted with two harbors. And so it was a strategically important city as far as commerce was concerned. But it was also one of the most decadent cities of the Roman Empire at that time. One of the dominant buildings in that city was the Temple of Aphrodite, uh, situated on a plateau about 1,800 feet above sea level. And it, that temple had over a thousand temple prostitutes and the people of the city regularly availed of their services. And yet it was in such a city, in Corinth of all places, that we read in Acts chapter 18. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid, keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you. Because I have many people in this city. (laughs) Even in such a city like Corinth, God had his people. And so Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. And so the church of God was established at Corinth. But precisely because it was situated in such a morally decadent city, over the next two or three years, inevitably, many of the the spirit of the city began to infiltrate the church. And the church was shot through with all kinds of problems. And Paul hears about these problems from two sources. In 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 11, he says, My brothers, some of you from, from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. So obviously probably a house church that met in the home of someone named Chloe, someone from there had given some information to Paul about problems that were going on. And then in chapter 7 verse 1, he introduces the second section of the book when he says, now for the matters that you wrote about. And so there was another bit of information that he got. A delegation from the church at Rome came with a letter that contained all kinds of questions that Paul addresses. And so these are the two broad divisions into which 1 Corinthians falls. The report from Chloe's household raises some questions that Paul addresses in the first six chapters and then the formal letter from the church with all kinds of questions and even some arguments with the Apostle Paul uh, lead to the uh, subject matter of the next uh, ten chapters. So let's take a look again at what's in in each of them. After a brief uh, introduction in the first nine verses, Paul addresses the problems of quarrels and divisions in the first four chapters. Then in chapter 5, he deals with sexual immorality in the church that the leaders were not doing anything about, uh, about and no discipline was being carried out. In chapter 6, in the first eight verses, he deals with the subject of lawsuits. Christians were taking other Christians to court and that in front of unbelieving judges. 
And then in chapter 6, verses 9 to 20, he deals with the whole subject of ritual prostitution, probably because of the nearness of the Aphrodite temple and her cult. That's the subject of the first division. And then in the second section, Paul deals with these questions that came up. Chapter 7 deals with the issue of spiritual marriages, where there was a group of people in the city that were advocating um, celibacy within marriage, because it was much more spiritual. And then the related subjects of divorce and remarriage, they're all addressed in chapter 7. Chapters 8 to 10 is a long section dealing with the issue of food offered to idols in the pagan temples, which was available for purchase on the marketplace. And the related problem of attending temple feasts in these pagan temples. In chapter 11, he deals with two issues of misbehavior, inappropriate behavior during public worship. One section has to do with some head coverings for women, and the second section which has to do with uh, inappropriate behavior during the Lord's table. Chapters 12 to 14 is another long section. This time he deals with the misunderstanding and misuse of spiritual gifts, especially the gifts of tongues and prophecy in the church. And then in chapter 15 he deals with a very long, famous chapter on the resurrection, but what we often do not know is that he actually wrote it to correct a particular theological aberration in the church, a misunderstanding related to the resurrection that was actually foundational to many of the other problems in the church. And then he finishes chapter 16 with an invitation to partner in the work of world missions. Very appropriate for us on the day of Pentecost. So that's, there's the, the structure of the book. Okay? It's, a, it's a book where he severely rebukes the people. And so here's the picture for you to remember what's happening in 1 Corinthians. How are you going to remember that it's 1 Corinthians? The guy on the left is obviously an Indian, but what kind of an Indian is he? There's an apple core. So he's a core Indian. Remember that. That will remind you of the book Corinthians. <laughs> and there's only one of them. So it's 1 Corinthians. <laughs> And he's spanking the saints. The halo on the top of him realizes that he's speaking to Christians and not to non-Christians. So that's the main theme of the book of 1 Corinthians. He's rebuking and disciplining the saints of God. Okay, let's go back and take a look at each of these sections. First of all, the problem of quarreling. What was happening there? He says, my brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Peter. And still another, I follow Christ. Now, these were not different theological camps as if somebody was a Baptist camp and the other one was an Alliance camp and somebody else a Pentecostal camp. It was not theological divisions at all. Rather, it had to do with issues of style. In Athens, as in in, in most parts of Greece, in Corinth I should say, there were traveling bands of speakers, philosophers, debaters who were skilled in the use of language and rhetoric and logic. And so they had a way of impressing people with their words and they drew all kinds of crowds. The focus was not so much on the content, but on the style or the manner. And of course, we know all about that every time we're into an election campaign. Yesterday's Globe and Mail had a section called, All Substance and No Style. Of course, it was the opposite they were really saying. And the headline says, Week one of the campaign and no leader has captured the country's interest. Kim Lundman, the correspondent, details their image flaws while the Globe uses photo manipulation to offer them ideas for getting noticed. And of course, down south of the border, from the time the election started, there was all about electability. We are quite used to this issue of style over substance when it comes to politics. By the way, these skills, these verbal skills of rhetoric and logic and debating styles were equated in Corinth in first century Greece with wisdom. This was the wisdom. Wise people knew this. And so, if you learn to appreciate all these things, you were part of the intelligentsia. You were wise. 
And I'm going to use the Greek word Sophia for wisdom to characterize this kind of human wisdom. Because that's from, by the way, that's where we get the word philosophy from the love of wisdom. Now, these guys in Corinth had applied this kind of thinking to the preachers of the gospel. So, some said, oh, I think Peter is a lot more stylish. Mostly, they were familiar with Paul and Apollos. And Apollos, as you know from the book of Acts, was a powerful, eloquent speaker. And so, he kind of fit into this mold. And though he wasn't doing it for that purpose, the people were enamored with the style of, the, of, of Paul's preaching and Apollos' preaching. And in their minds, this was all wisdom. Now, as I said, outside the church, we see this all the time in politicking. We have the same kind of problem inside the church sometimes. Maybe not so much when it's applied to preachers anymore, but certainly charismatic, stylish leaders who have the ability to speak well and use words and language well, we can sometimes begin to pay attention to that and get swayed by that rather than by the content and the depth of what is in these people. I see it also in music, for example. And especially those of you who are younger, while I just rejoice in your, in your love for music and worship, remember, remember, I am told that, the, that retro is a bad word in the young people's area. So that's looking back. You can get enamored by style more than substance if you're not careful. By the way, that's equally true of uh, traditional music as well, where our focus is more on style than on the substance. How does Paul deal with this issue? How does he deal with the problem of this distorted wisdom or Sophia? He deals with it head on by talking about the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. How stylish can you look on the cross? How stylish was Jesus on the cross? If you saw the movie The Passion, you'd know the answer to that question right away. Somehow style is not associated when somebody's crucified. And Paul amplifies this. He says, first of all, look at the message of the cross. 1 Corinthians 1.22 Jews demand miraculous sign and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God shown on the cross is stronger than man's strength. So the message is foolishness. And he said, those of you who believed, you weren't all that clever to begin with. The followers of the cross, brothers, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. The message is foolish. The followers aren't all that impressive. And as far as the preaching of the cross, says Paul, style has nothing to do with it. Chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And he goes on to say, so that your faith may rest not in the wisdom of man, but in the power of Almighty God. The message is foolish. The followers are not impressive. The preaching is not stylish. <laughs> Therefore, says Paul, look, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. So why are you guys all excited about how impressive the speakers are when they amount to nothing? Only God who causes results to happen. He's the only one that's worthy of praise. 
And he says, so, so stop being impressed by all these external factors. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Good for us to remember that. This is how Paul addresses the issue of style over substance. By pointing to the cross. The preaching, the followers, and the message of the cross. Now, as I was reading this chap book and getting ready for today's message, I was struck by the fact that Paul's use of the cross, or at least the mindset of Jesus that took him to the cross, that's the real issue because he's not on the cross anymore. The mindset of Jesus on the cross was not only an answer to this first problem of quarrels that are based upon style preferences and things like that, it actually goes right throughout the whole book of 1 Corinthians. And that this mindset of Christ that took him to the cross is the answer to all of the problems that we see in the in First Corinthians. And Paul implies that as much in chapter 2, verse 12, before he moves on. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, expressing spiritual truths and spiritual words. And he finishes by saying, but we have the mind of Christ. This same attitude that took Jesus to the cross is the kind of mind that God has enabled all Christians to have. And so Paul is going to show how this mindset alone is going to be able to solve all these problems. And of course we don't have time in a 35 minute sermon to look at every one of the problems in 1 Corinthians. So I've chosen four of them to specifically illustrate this aspect of the mind of Christ. First of all, the problem of lawsuits. As I said to you, what was happening? Here's the problem. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 and 6. If any of you has a dispute with another... Dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? But instead, one brother goes to law against another. Of course, that was the, mi- that was the mindset of Sophia. Human wisdom said, if somebody owes you something, go use whatever means you have to get it. And get more if you can in the process. Take him to the cleaners, is their philosophy. What does Paul say? The solution would be totally inappropriate to human wisdom. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? Instead of fighting, he says, why not choose to lose? Which, of course, was the very precise attitude of the Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout those 18 hours, of the last 18 hours of his life on earth, you, every year I read it for Lent, and every year I'm amazed how many times he refused to defend himself. He repeatedly chose to lose, rather than win by the methods of human wisdom. That is the mindset, says Paul, that's going to solve this problem of lawsuits. You will be wrong sometimes by other Christians. Choose to lose. Then this matter of food offered to idols. What was the, what was the issue there? Well, the Corinthians offered meat uh, sacrifices. And this was good meat. And so it was often put on the mar- open marketplace afterwards for public consumption. And the price was good. And so there were many Christians who said, look, meat's good stuff, it's good price, why can't we buy it and eat it? And they have no problems of scruple just because it was offered to idols. And for good reason, as the Apostle Paul says in chapter 8, verse 6, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came, and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, and through whom we live. So God made the meat, God gave it to us through Jesus. If we can get it at a good price, what's the problem? And there was nothing wrong with that kind of thinking. But, says Paul, it's only half the story. 
It's good that you guys have such a strong, robust conscience, but there are other people in the church who don't know these things. He says, but not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. So what Paul is saying is, even though you have all these freedoms, there are others who do not have this kind of knowledge. And so when they see you behave in this way, they are emboldened to follow you and to copy you, but they are in fact violating their own consciences. Now, the Sophia mindset would say, tough luck buddy, that's your problem. You're just not free enough. You're not advanced enough. We're just further along in our faith in Christ than you are. So you better grow up and become free. That, that's the Sophia mindset. Don't bother me with your scruples. Paul says that's not good enough. But he goes on to say, now about food sacrifice to idols, what about it? He says, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge is okay, says Paul, but knowledge by itself is only going to lead to pride, which is what Sophia was driven by. He said, but how about love? And how does love work in a case like this? Paul says, so this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Now, this is not talking about every single objection that every single Christian has to our way of living. He says, if, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, if there's real potential to cause somebody else to transgress the limits of God's laws, he says, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. And Paul shows this mindset at work in other areas. In chapter 9, for example, he applies the same principle to the issue of other rights. For example, he says, The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel, which is why part of the money that you give in the offering every week goes to pay my salary and other pastors here. Because God has commanded that that's okay, that's the way it should be. But Paul says, I didn't use this right. Why didn't I use this right? On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Five times in chapter 9 you will read the word rights and six times in chapter 9 you will read the word gospel. Basically what Paul is saying is, yes, it is a God-given right for me to live by your giving to me because I'm preaching the gospel. But in order that the gospel not be hindered, I'm going to work with my own hands and I'm not going to take anything from you. It's a demonstration of the mindset of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so Paul says, apply that to this issue of food and drink. And so he finishes in chapter 10 by saying, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Love for human beings and love for the glory of God, Paul says, let that, let that determine whether you're going to eat, whether you're going to drink, whether you're going to do this or do that or the other. Which again, of course, was the mindset of Jesus Christ when he went to the cross. He went because he loved people and he went because he was passionate about the glory of God. So now let's look at the third area, which is the whole area of spiritual gifts. Now what was the problem here? There were basically two problems. Problem number one is first chapter, First Corinthians 12:15. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. This is the problem of undervaluing your spiritual gift. There are some people in Corinth who say, well, I guess I'm not important. My, my gifts aren't all that important. And probably part of the reason was because of the second problem. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. This is overvaluing my gift. And it was probably because of the fact that there were many people who were overvaluing these dramatic speaking gifts because that kind of tied in with the Sophia problem in Greece, in Corinth, that others who did not have all these spectacular gifts were being made to feel unimportant. 
And so this is the two-fold problem when it comes to spiritual gifts. Undervaluing your gift and overvaluing gift. I don't need, you don't need me, I don't need you. Now how does Paul deal with it? Well, he deals with it first of all by saying, look, in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. He uses the analogy of a human body and says, no, one part of the body is more important than the other. God has arranged each one of them with their own individual responsibilities in this case. So you're different from one another, but it doesn't mean one is more important than the other. You're all equally important. That's the first thing. And then to particularly address the Sophia mindset, because that, I think, was the problem with all this, the, the overvaluers, he said, but God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So he says, you guys who think you've arrived, of all people, you should be more solicitous of those people who don't look all that spectacular because they have been given special honor by God. So that's how Paul addresses this issue. And again, again, we see the issue of the mindset of Jesus Christ. When Christ went to the cross, Philippians, and we'll come to that book in a few weeks in our journey on Highway 27, it says that that was a demonstration of, of, of humility. Now, we are all used to understanding humility as not thinking too much of ourselves. But humility also means I won't think less of myself. Paul says in Romans, the book we looked at last week, every one of us should think of ourselves with sober judgment, especially when it comes to spiritual gifts. So humility is just thinking correctly about yourself. So it is again the mindset of the Lord Jesus Christ that solves the problem of both overvaluing my gift and undervaluing my gift. To those of you who, who think you are more important than somebody else in the church, the mind of Christ says to you, don't do that. You are no more or less important. And to those of you who think you're not important enough and that your gift is of no value in this church, Jesus says to you, that's not humility either. Think accurately about your gift and begin to play your part in it. You're just as important. And so that's how he deals with the issue of spiritual gifts. And that's why he moves in chapter 13 to love. Where the body is to love one another. The, the context for the exercise of the gifts of the Spirit is the love of God. Now, 1 Corinthians 13 is a well-known chapter on love and the central section is often read in weddings. But something that we might miss is how the mindset of Christ is important to obey that. We simply read, love is patient, love is kind, love does not boast, love does not keep any record of wrongs, love is not rude, love is not self-seeking, etc., etc., etc. And we stop there. What, what is not so obvious is that if we are truly going to love that way, every time we have to love that way, something within us is going to die, or has to die. For example, if love is patient, your clamor to get something now is going to have to die. Impatience has to die. If love does not boast, your desire for attention is going to have to die. If love will not keep record of wrongdoing, then your desire to have ammunition in your back, back pocket for an argument sometime in the future is going to have to die. Something has to die Every time we choose to love the way 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, which is why the mindset of Jesus Christ is so important. Unless we work the mind of Christ into us, we'll never love anybody, let alone our spouses. And we'll close us to home, we're not going to love. And then in chapter 15, Paul begins to talk about the resurrection. Now again, as I said, we're familiar with 1 Corinthians 15 as a great chapter on the resurrection. We read it at Easter. Why did Paul go to the subject at this point? Well, you see, this, there was a fundamental problem that was underlying all of this uh, Sophia business that expressed itself in all these other problems. 
And that was these people had thought they had somehow arrived. If you read the opening verses of 1 Corinthians, you'll find that this was a very gifted church. The Apostle Paul says, you have been intensely gifted by the Holy Spirit. You have been enriched in every way by the Spirit. You do not lack any spiritual gift. Imagine a church, imagine a church in which not a single gift of the Holy Spirit was missing. And imagine that those gifts were present in intensity. What we pray for. Imagine a church where that happened. Well, that was the church that had all these problems. You know why? Because they said, oh, we've arrived. Look at all this. We've arrived. There's nothing more left. And that spilled over into an aberration on the theology of the resurrection where they began to deny that there was any future bodily resurrection awaiting them. But we don't need that. We've already arrived. And as a result of this, the spirit began to be elevated and the body began to be discounted, which is why both celibacy and sinfulness could both exist at the same time. Because both come from the same root that the body isn't important. The body isn't important, so it doesn't matter if you indulge in temple prostitutes. The body isn't important, therefore go ahead and eat all you want in a communion service and forget about the guys who don't have any. The body isn't important, therefore forget about sex and marriage. It's much more spiritual to be celibate. All these lies, even mutually exclusive lies, came from the same fundamental distortion that they had somehow arrived. And so Paul writes this magnificent chapter on the resurrection to, to, to undercut that that insidious teaching that the body is not important. Later on, by the second century, it become a full-blown error of uh, heresy of Gnosticism, or one part of Gnosticism. But here, Paul is speaking about it. And so, first of all, he gives a historical proof. He said, listen, he first of all appeared to Peter. Then he appeared to the disciples. Then he appeared to 500 people at the same time. Then he appeared to James. Then he appeared to the rest of the apostles. And last of all, he said, I saw him. He's living. He's alive. Jesus has risen from the dead. So, first of all, he gives a historical argument. Then he goes to the theological argument. He said, by the way, if you guys think you're not going to be raised from the dead, that there is no resurrection from the dead in the future, then Jesus was not raised from the dead either. And if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, you are in a real mess. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins, then also those who have fallen asleep or dead in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. So basically he's saying, look, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, if this is the only life you have, the Corinthians are much wiser than you are. Might as well eat, drink and be merry because tomorrow you'll die. And then of course he says, there's the practical implications. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink and, and drink because tomorrow we die. That's the Epicurean philosophy. He says it makes a lot more sense. Hedonism is the only sensible alternative if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Is what Paul was saying. But he did rise from the dead. And then comes the grand conclusion. The grand finale to this argument and to the whole book. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash and the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will all be changed. And then he goes on to say that then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. You know, it kind of struck me that he begins, the, he, he begins his thanking of the saints with a magnificent statement on the cross of Jesus. And he ends with an incredible statement on the resurrection of Jesus. Between the cross or the mindset of Jesus that took him to the cross and the resurrection which tells us what God thinks of that kind of a mindset is the solution to all the problems that was facing God. And so it is for us today. Let this mind be in us which was in Jesus. And let us think, remember what God thinks of that kind of a mindset. And what he thinks of Sophia by contrast. 
then we will deal with the problems that we face in our churches as well. By the way, it also struck me how, remember in the original there are no chapter divisions, so there's no break between 1 Corinthians 15.58 and 16.1. Now if you read them together, here's what it sounds like. Therefore, my brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now about the collection for God's people. He just jumps from a huge chapter on the resurrection to getting your daily offering in church without even missing a beat. Because for Paul, that's spiritual stuff. Sophia, wisdom, doesn't care about the poor. But God's wisdom is intensely concerned about ministry to the poor. And then he goes on, of course, in the rest of the chapter to ask them to be partners with him in the accomplishing of the Great Commission. Anyway, so that's the message of 1 Corinthians. What about uh, us today? Three things in particular struck me. First of all, reject Sophia and pursue true wisdom. Look what Paul says. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. That one sentence alone explains most of our political problems. But God has revealed it to us by His Spirit, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. We have the mind of Christ. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, here's God. Forget about Sophia. Forget about human wisdom. God, God has wisdom for us. He destined that wisdom from before the foundation of the world. That wisdom he then put in the form of verbal truth. He inspired spiritual men to write down this truth for us in what we call the Bible. And then he so transformed your mind and my mind to give us the capacity to be able to understand this truth. Most of us will never become PhDs. So fear is beyond most of our reach, thank goodness. But this wisdom, there isn't a single person beyond whose reach it is. Because each one of our minds has been uniquely made. It has been shaped as a receptacle for the divine wisdom of God that is revealed in God's word and God's truth. You know, they, in Baluchi, they are begging us, please send us one book. We've got dozens of versions of the Bible. I have six versions on just my palm pile. But is this how we are approaching it? Do, do, do we see that we've been given the mind of Christ? And in that book, between the pages of that book is wisdom. And our minds have been shaped for it. And we are, we are spiritual people. And God has given spiritual truth and spiritual words. Do you think that every Sunday when you come here and begin to hear the word of God, whether in my preaching or somebody else's preaching or the word uh, incarnate and uh, encapsulated in the music, that you're being, it's an opportunity to receive wisdom from God. That's the only way we'll reject Sophia and to become pursuers of true wisdom. Now this does require discipline, which leads me to the second one. Embrace the discipline involved not as duty, but delight in a certain reward. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Next to the Olympic Games, the most important games were known as the Isthmian Games and Corinth was the center for that. Everyone who completes in games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. Now nobody, you know, do, you, do you know any athletes who goes into training because they like training? No, everybody goes into training because they're going to win a crown. How many athletes do you think are going to train for the Olympics after they've been told they're not on the Olympics team? 
No, he says, they go into strict training to get a crown. No, we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the price. Paul undergoes rigorous discipline in his Christian life, not because he loves discipline, not because he's a masochist, but because he is absolutely certain of an incredible, joyful prize waiting for him. And this prize is not like a lollipop, you know, totally unrelated to what you were working on. The prize is our increased capacity for joy. The, the best illustration I can get that comes close to this is, you know, sometimes every now and then we get an opportunity where, where, where we are invited to a real feast. And we know a huge feast is coming and there's all the food that we really like. Most of us make the mistake of preparing for that by dieting. I'm going to eat very little for the next three days so I can really eat a lot. But of course it's the opposite. What happens when you don't eat much is your stomach shrinks. And you can't eat that much. The best way to prepare for one of those feasts is to keep eating a lot before. Then your stomach expands and you can eat even more. See, we all understand that when it comes to the physical, and that's what Paul's talking about here. He says, why do I undergo all this discipline? Why, why, why the discipline of learning and reading and studying and expanding my mind for God's word? Because you are getting ready for a feast. You are expanding and enlarging your spiritual appetite so that when you stand before Jesus in all his beauty and glory, you will have unbelievable capacities, appetites, Taste buds, everything will be at a premium. Why would you not prepare for that? That's what he's saying. So embrace the discipline not as a duty, but as a delight in a certain reward that is coming for us. And then thirdly, count on him to come through. This book begins and ends with a focus on God. Chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus our Lord, is faithful. He will keep us strong. He is faithful is His opening words. His ending words, thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we reject Sophia and become men and women of wisdom, as we embrace the discipline involved because of the sure and certain joy that is waiting for us, let us count on Him all the time. He is strong, He is faithful, and He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So here it is for us. Pursue true wisdom, embrace the discipline involved and counter him to come through. And as we now come uh, to the table of the Lord, as the worship team comes and begins to lead us in preparing for that. You know, we're, we're moving from one way of feeding on Christ to another. We receive the mind of Christ progressively as we listen to God's word, as we have been doing. But we also receive it as we worship earlier. We also receive it through this mysterious uh, ordinance called communion. Throughout the history of the church, for all of her disobedience in so many different ways, one act of obedience they've never, never stopped is celebrating the Lord's Supper. All over the world, the church of all kinds of shapes and sizes and descriptions has obeyed the Lord in this one particular area. And we are coming to face mystery today. And so, as you come, as you sing, continue, continue to feed upon Jesus. Wisdom enters in the way of mystery and worship as well as through the word. And as they are singing, will those who are leading us in the serving of the communion, will you make your way to the front please? Lord Jesus, we do thank you so much that you have come to rescue us from the tyranny of uh, human wisdom. And that you have become for us wisdom and righteousness and holiness and redemption. 
And once again, as we come to this, uh, this part of our worship today, we ask, O oh God, that we would not only just remember, but in reliving the event with a little bit more understanding than the disciples, that our souls will be touched and enlarged by, by worship and by majesty, something that's bigger than we can comprehend. And therefore, we come to you and ask you to fill us. Augustine asks you to expand his heart and make space for yourself and force your way in. And we ask you that, O oh God. We ask you in this act of eating and imbibing Jesus Christ. That again, it, it will be worked right into the very essence of our mind and our heart. We freely acknowledge, O oh God, that we have neglected this incredible gift of a renewable mind. And we have not embraced the discipline of renewing our minds. Make us love, make us true philosophers, lovers of the true wisdom, Father. Thou art the living truth, all wisdom dwells in thee, thou source of every skill in eternal verity. Thou great I am, in thee we rest, true answer to our every quest. And so give rest to our souls. Earthly wisdom just continues to stir us up, Father. Save us from the tyranny of listening to the clamor of so many wise voices around us. Maybe a sheep know the voice of the shepherd who goes before us. Let your voice become the one dominant clear voice and maybe just love that voice. We say again, behold, your voice surpasses the abundance of our treasures. Give that which we love. Lord, continue to speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus Christ took bread. Jesus said, this is my body, which has been given up for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And remember that death has been swallowed up in victory. Praise be to God that we have victory in Jesus Christ. Let's eat together. In the same way he took the cup. John, John wrote, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And Jesus applies truth in our lives, but he does it with grace that strengthens us. And so, may our hearts be strengthened by grace as we drink together.